Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Relentless Boats, custom aluminum fabrication, boat builder right down in Thibodeau, all the features and designs that you would expect from a boat maker right there on the on the South Louisiana Marsh. So live relentless, boat relentless, and check out RelentlessBoatsLA.com. So, Kyler, here we are, episode 59, and uh, getting right into that Christmas spirit. You got your jingle bells on? My, my wife is actually making jingle bed jingle bell uh little visors for my my kids class right now so i guess yes yeah so it's it's uh as you're listening to this episode of the podcast we are we will be like a week away from christmas um like the, the week That's before right. so uh the christmas season is upon us that means the deer should be rutting in a large majority of our listening area and uh you know we always talk a little bit and conversate a little bit in the intro and i it's kind of uh a little bit monotonous right now it's like wait for the weather pattern do your reconnaissance kind of know your scouting and try to hunt the right spots on the right days and hope that the deer aren't locked down with the doe hope that they're up cruising around and and all that kind of sort of thing i have to make one admission um i I today got in the mail something that we've talked about a few times on the podcast and it gets talked about a lot around bow hunting and I have never gotten into it until today. Do you want to guess what that product might be? I have no I have no idea. I'm literally racking my brain. I have no idea what you're about to tell me. I also don't know if you're serious. 
I'm serious. No, I'm very serious. Okay, because that's the, like I would preface something that way and totally be joking. Not. I'm very serious. So today okay. in the mail, I got the Scentlock version of the Odor Destroyer Radial Nano Ozone Generator. Okay. And uh, this is this is Scentlock's version of the Ozonics, and the difference between this and an Ozonics that you have the tree bracket that you screw into the tree and, and mount above you and it distributes the ozone, you know, over the top of you while you're sitting in your stand. This is like, the best way I can describe it is it looks like a really big, like, uh, what would you call, um, like a toy or a really big sort of uh, novelty, like 44 Magnum bullet. Like, okay. <laughs> so it's like a it's like it's like a coke can size but it's got a, a a kind of a rounded head tip to it like a bullet would have and then it's yeah. got a base kind of a base to it and it's got a lanyard tether tether rope thing that connects to the bottom so instead of instead of the the larger kind of like book type uh form of the ozone or the ozonics that you carry the bracket and screw in the tree and all that. It's just a little canister thing, and you just hang it from a bow hook or hang it from a limb, and it's it's radial, so it's got ports all around the head of it, and it just distributes ozone in every direction. So you, you bought this, or somebody sent it to you, I or bought what? It. I bought it, and I okay. bought it because my dad has this one spot on our property that he loves to hunt, but it's kind of in a bowl. So, like, on... If you can imagine this kind of circular food plot, not really big, but but pretty much a circle. And three quarters of that circle, more than a half moon, all, all like three quarters of that circle is a bowl. Like it's a ridge that wraps all the way around it. Like there's two or three ridges that kind of tie in and make it like a bowl. And then on the flat other side, the, the last quarter side is a big creek bottom. So the wind is always just you cannot predict it it like you literally can sit there on a windy day and watch the leaves blow one direction across the plot and turn around and blow right back the other direction because the wind just swirls all around inside that bowl and then dives off in that creek bottom so i go to the camp last week or so and he's like i hate to admit this because he's just never been a gadgety kind of person when it comes to hunting stuff he's like i I stopped at the sporting goods store and I bought this thing so he could hang it out of his stick. Cause he's just like, he's committed to hunting this spot, but every time he hunts there, the deer smell him, no matter what way the wind's blowing, no matter what's going on. And I was looking at the one he bought. There's one that's a little bit bigger. Mine's the Nano, and then the one he got, I don't know what it's called, but it's basically the exact same thing. It's just a little bit larger. Um, so I guess it's a little more powerful, maybe a longer battery life or something. And I thought it was a really neat product, and I found it on sale on Amazon for like 150 bucks, normally like 225 or something. And I thought, I'm going to try this because I'm going to go hunt <laughs> with my son quite a few times over the next several days, and there's going to be two of us up in the tree. And I thought, let's give it a shot. So for all the conversations we've had about ozone and how it works and people ask it all the time ask me about this like hey do you use yeah. that thing what do you think about it i'm like i don't know like i i use it in my little scent crusher closet in my shop where i like put my clothes in yes. there and turn it on but i've never used it in a tree 
So, um, we'll see. That's, I'll, uh, I, will, I will follow so you up. You didn't feel like you, you didn't feel like building one from scratch like I did a couple no, years ago. No, I did ago? not. I do not have that that sort of uh, whatever it is that makes you want to modify and build things like that. I'm just more along yeah. the lines of Amazon does a great job of like two day prime shipping, <laughs> and I don't have to do yeah. any of that. So anyway, well, um, I got I got asked again. It was specifically about an Ozonic, but I mean it's ozone is ozone. Um, but I got asked last week, I think, by Justin Johnson up in Northeast. He's, oh no, he's in Dennis Springs. Uh, he, he hunts uh, like north north of Baton Rouge, a good ways, and. Um, he asked me my opinion on ozone and I, I have to be honest, I haven't used my ozonics in at, at least two years. Um, not for any reason other than the fact that it's just like kind of cumbersome to bring in. And I, I've kind of been in the mode of cutting down on gear and, and weight. And, uh, and I've also made more of a deliberate effort to put, to put my bad wind side um, in a direction that a deer can't come from, like, you know, a bayou, a body of water, or, you know, the way that I walked in from or something. And, uh, and my answer to him very honestly was, I said, I, I cannot tell you, um, explicitly that it works, but I can tell you explicitly that I have never been hurt by it. Um, and, and that's kind of an in-between answer. That's not, you know, that, and, and I'm, I'm trying to be, honest there because especially in the hunting world everything's so over the top hardcore sale like definitive answers like yeah you know if you use x you'll kill all the big deer or like look at like things like the extinguisher grunt call you're gonna start calling in seven year bucks with this thing and that type of stuff and um and so i told him as honestly as i could i said you know in all the times i've used it I can tell you for a fact that I have had some deer come from downwind unspooked, but I can't tell you through a hundred hunts and a hundred um, sample sizes uh, of data that, that yes, this helped me. I said, the thing that I brought it for and the, the thing that you should probably be keeping in mind about ozone in general is that it is a very temporary insurance policy. It is not an invisibility cloak. Yeah. At like, and that's how I've always viewed it. It does not make you invisible scent wise. It will make a deer if they smell you not bolt immediately because they're kind of confused and they never smelled anything like that. Um, but um, I, I maybe I need to break mine back out. I haven't mm. haven't used mine in a, in a while. Well, what you said, so. what you said, was the only reason, and that, and I found it on a really good sale. Is the only reason, like. The reason I have not done it is because I have hunted as a when, at filming. I filmed someone who brought one to the stand and hung it in the tree. So I've, been, I've actually been in the tree with one. But, you know, the reason I haven't done it is because of the same reason that you just mentioned. Bulk and the Ozonic as it is, it has a larger, heavier battery. It's a larger form factor piece of equipment. You have the attachment to put it in the tree. And I'm already packing in camera gear and all that stuff for the way that I hunt. And I just have not been able to convince myself that I had room to add it to my arsenal. And when my dad showed up at the camp with this thing, and then I got to researching it, and I found that, hey, they've got another one. And it literally is its the equivalent of you taking a regular can of Coke, full a full mm-hmm. can, weight-wise, a full can of Coke, and size-wise, a can of Coke, just a regular 
can of soda and putting it in your pack. That's all it is. And it may not work yeah. as well. I don't know, but I'm willing to try it. So I'm going to update everyone in the coming weeks about what I think of this thing. It is my mission to now provide podcast content on research and development of this radial ozone scent destroyer. So um, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. So um, we have a uh, we have a fact, data, interesting, packed episode in line for you and we're not going to beleaguer that point much longer and um uh, kyler's actually going to tell us about our guest and what we're talking about today and before we do that remind you about screegear.com they're actually uh continuing and and pushing even harder to sell off all the mountain stealth pattern gear with that with that uh that camo pattern being discontinued at the first of the year so 30 to 50% off, you can find a tab right there on the website that says Stealth Clearance or something to that effect, and you'll find all kind of great deals. Great opportunity to finish out your layering system if you're already wearing Mountain Stealth with pieces that you may not be able to get again, or if you've just been looking to try out some pieces of, of this style of gear and, and, and check out Scree specifically. This is a great chance to do it at a seriously discounted rate, and the it, and the that you know the the thing that Scree is becoming most known for is their authentic lifetime warranty, and the lifetime warranty still applies even on these items that are being discontinued. So check them out at ScreeGear.com. That's S-K-R-E ScreeGear.com. So moving on to the heart of our episode, Kyler, tell us about what we're gonna we're gonna talk about today. So I get a little deep here for a second, and the way that we got to the topic of this episode and our guests, plural, two guests tonight, um, is uh, it came about one of my favorite ways that things happen in life, which is very unexpectedly and linearly. What I mean by linearly is there are things in your life, like everybody listening right now, who you married, where you went to school, you know, where you hunt, why you um, why you live in the city you do. There are direct reasons as to how you got to exactly where you're standing right now, backtracked to 25 other decisions you've made in the past. Just a very linear, chronological series of events that got you to exactly where you are today. And what's so incredible about that uh, that thought is that oftentimes we do things and we and we we get a totally different outcome than what we intended on. And so anybody that's been listening to the podcast, or especially if you know me personally, I have a um, I have a, a, an unusual sense of humor. I have a drug that I, I, I love to you know, flex as often as I can. And um, we released three different shirts this year that are just kind of funny um, spellings of some of the most commonly misspelled or mispronounced pieces of public land in the state. We did a Sherburn shirt, which is like, you know, five or six different ways that people spell Sherburn on uh, the internet or on Facebook or whatever. And what it is, it's the, it's the six wrong misspellings. And at the very bottom, it's the correct one with an asterisk. And then we did one for Tinsaw. And then we did one for Thistlethwaite. Thistlethwaite. And um, those three are the ones that I see most 
misspelled most frequently. So we created these shirts, and I had a couple hundred of them made. And this has been in the works for a long, long time. We've wanted to do this for a long time. So if you if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to LouisianaBowHunter.com, go to the shirts section, and you'll see what I mean. Well, so I launched them on the website, and then all of a sudden, I push them on social media, and all of a sudden, like four or five different people with the last name Thistleweight start buying them. And, and that's the first people that kind of like really latched on to it. And then um, I got an order, and in the order notes, it said, we love these shirts, family owns Thistleweight WMA, we lease it to the state. Everybody gets our name wrong all the time, et cetera, et cetera. We think this is hilarious. Thank you so much. And back to that whole linear thing I was talking about a minute ago, this was just a, a, like a, a joke, like just a rib jab. It's like, hey, this is how we all spell it wrong. Here's how it's spelled correctly. Just kind of a joke. And, and then here we are with a, an entire family that has kind of dealt their whole lives, I guess, with getting their name misspelled that are laughing at these shirts, buying them all. And so I talked to her. She mentions that her dad um, was, uh, in, in her words, she really enjoyed uh, history and kind of being a historian on the property and amongst other things. And so he and I spoke. And so tonight we have Patrick Thistleweight and his second cousin, Lawrence Thistleweight on the phone, and he's going to be telling us about Thistleweight WMA, which the first piece of information about it is that the state doesn't own it. I don't. I did not know this before we made these shirts. And so, um, you know, Patrick and Lawrence, thank you all for joining us tonight. I appreciate you all coming on. <clears throat> Glad to be here. Well, so um, the the, um, the the like I said, the first thing that was most surprising to me was as hunters, we see public land or we see a WMA and we assume it's state owned or federally owned potentially, if it's an NWR. And so when, um, I, it, it's your daughter that I was speaking to originally, when she told me that y'all lease it to the state, that was really interesting to me, and it had me wondering, what else don't we know about this property and other properties? And so when you and I spoke, you've been doing research for quite a while, um, just, on, just on facts about it. So start off, Patrick, if you don't mind, kind of tell us about your family history with that property. Yes, well, this wildlife management area is a lease, but unlike other leases, it's a free lease. We receive no monies for this lease. Uh, the lease was first uh, made in 1966. Uh, family members composing the Thistleweight Lumber Company uh, made this lease to the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And in 1977, uh, those people formed a partnership which presently exists called Fisco. This land is uh, family owned. In other words, um, it's not owned by uh, some uh, investment group or a large business that may be interested in using it for other purposes than it's used presently. So we're very happy uh, to be receiving the co cooperation of the Louisiana 
Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and uh, they listen to our concerns when we have them. Uh, they usually uh, work out uh, a good resolution. We work very well together with the department, and uh, in the end, it benefits the people who are hunters and visitors to that area. Well, um, so y'all, you said it's been leased since 1966. What is the renewal period of the lease? Well, because our legal papers in Cisco say we cannot, the man, managing partners cannot make a lease longer than 10 years, this needs to be renewed every 10 years. And as a matter of fact, uh, just this past Monday, we were at the uh, headquarters in Lafayette meeting with the commissioner and other representatives, and we renewed the lease for another 10 years. In other words, we renewed it on December the 7th, and that lease will be in effect for 10 years. And as far as I'm concerned, we intend to lease it after those 10 years are up, just continue to lease the property because it, it works so well for what it's intended. And we're still able to um, reserve some use of the property, such as uh, growing trees and uh, other things that may uh, uh, exist above the surface or below the surface of the ground. But it's a good combination of uh, the public enjoying the land as well as uh, the family members. So, um, uh, to be totally honest, I've, I've personally never been in Thistleway. I've never hunted the jungle. Hunted around it, hunted near it. Um, how many acres of, is it in total? Well, there's a sign as you enter the one of the gates that says it's 11,100 acres. 11,100 acres. And the interesting thing is that all of these acres are, are contigu contiguous. They're all contained in the same area. You don't have to cross a fence to get to another part of the wildlife management area. And for those of you who don't know where it's located, uh, many of you have been there, I'm sure, but uh, it's about four miles northeast of the little town of Washington, Louisiana, Washington. And it's uh, not nicely situated, sort of in the center of Louisiana, making it easy for northerners to come down or people from the south to come up. It's, we're very lucky to have Interstate 49 pass very close to it. In fact, if you go on Interstate 49 and so you're going to Washington, you'll take it exit uh, on a road called Louisiana 10, LA 10, and then you'll travel about four miles, uh, well, two miles, and you'll come to a road called Plant Road, which is the main entrance. Plant Road is the main entrance to the wildlife management area that takes to takes you to the uh, inside of the uh, wooded area. This is uh, just one main entrance that's uh, intended to be used by the uh, people who uh, go there hunting. Gotcha. Uh, you you had mentioned a lot of road road access through the property. Um, can you tell me about the significance of those roads and, and if that's something that's a state expense that they maintain or if that's something that y'all are required to maintain? No, no, no. The roads are strictly non-state um, roads. They're private roads are maintained. In this case, the Wildlife Department of Wildlife and Fisheries does a very good job of uh, assisting to maintain the roads from uh, applying some 300 tons of limestone in the last five years to grading the road. Um, 
the roads uh, are not just one road in and one road out. It's like a spider web. The road, the roads go all to all because this was formerly a uh, an oil field. It's no longer an oil field. There is an underground storage facility on the property, um, but there are many roads that go to different parts of the area, making it easy to go to um, the desired hunting location. Gotcha. Okay, I wasn't sure if I wasn't sure if that was something that y'all maintained or they did. So, no, what it's is maintained the private between you and the state. Then, uh, repeat that, please. I, I'm sorry. I think we talking over each other. I apologize. Um, what is the agreement between Louisiana and the Dissuade family? You have repeatedly mentioned that it's a great deal for both of y'all. Um, are y'all kind of kind of not having to handle the, the upkeep of it, or is there a tax incentive for it? Because obviously for a paid lease, it seems um, obviously great for the state. I'm just kind of curious what the state has taken over as far as land management for yeah. that you have to do well, otherwise. Well, well, the number number one advantage of having the department uh, as the leasee enjoyed the benefits of the area is that they uh, maintain the hunting and uh, in charge of uh, the people who hunt there. Um, they actually uh, keep records, um, which uh, I may discuss later, of the number of hunters and what they're hunting and what the kill is. And uh, as you uh, probably know, they're using self-clearing permits now, either little cards or phone apps to uh, to uh, enter the information that you're going in and you came out and what you whether you were successful in getting something. But the uh, Wildlife and Fisheries Commission does more than just um, oversee the hunters. And they also have, um, they, monitor, they monitor duck boxes, they do vegetation control, they uh, help hog trapping because hogs are, something that we don't desire for our purposes or hunting purposes. Uh, they mark boundaries. They do beaver trapping. They um, have research there, um, allow research, collecting biological data. And they do the uh, trail and road maintenance. And there are about 10 um, handicapped roads that go into the woods for those people who can't walk and they maintain those paths uh, in the area so that um, people can access uh, hunting deeper into the woods by riding in, for instance, a four-wheeler. It's uh, the biggest problem that they've been working with us on, I think at this time, is the uh, hog problem because the hogs tear up the woods, they eat the crops, which Lawrence can um, dwell on, I'm sure. And uh, also uh, nutrient beaver have been a problem too in there because they clog up the uh, drainage and cause high water, which is presently a problem. We have in high water at this time. So we, uh, they, um, they do a lot um, as being partners in this area. Well, so as I someone, I got you. as someone who I, I've also never hunted at this await, um, I've actually never, never been on the property. 
Um, can you tell us just kind of a, a brief overview of geographically for people who haven't been there, you know, what, what the property looks like in terms of uh, how much diversity does it have in, in its, in its uh, timber and, and all that? Like, what, what do you expect to see when you, when you venture around Thistle Waves? Well, I could tell you, but I'm going to ask Lawrence to go ahead and describe it because he probably sees it more often than I do. Um, I'm very familiar with it, but Lawrence, let me, I'll hand that over to you. Okay. Well, you, you can basically expect to see a typical hardwood bottom, uh, tall palmettas, uh, briars, uh, cypress sloughs, no uh, no pine trees, but just overall uh, just a typical hardwood bottomland uh, forest. Yeah, so it's so it's so it's pretty flat. It's 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 flat for the most part, with some ridges, uh, low areas, uh, some some swampy areas. But you know, it's 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 pretty much a typical hardwood bottom forest. Okay. Cool. Sounds it sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> with a really well, outstanding stand of palmettos, cool. <laughs> which makes it difficult. Patrick, what were you going to say? I was going to say that uh, this is uh, primarily bottomland, uh, bottomland hardwood area, which is very, very uh, good habitat for deer, I understand, as opposed to maybe piney forest. Another advantage of this area um, is that uh, selective cutting of some of the trees, not clear cutting, but just selective cutting, and not the whole area, but just uh, portions of that area, are occasionally uh, end of uh, timber and sold. And uh, this is uh, a great advantage for the uh, to attract deer because uh, when the trees are gone, the undergrowth can come up and they have uh, feeding material. Unfortunately, it also uh, brings on palmettas, which um, allow the deer to be uh, more easily hidden from view. Uh, but uh, they... Uh, seem to survive and i understand that some of the largest deer in the state are taken from this area how, how, how long has it been in your family can you remind me the property um uh, was probably uh obtained by uh, a grand a great grandfather probably in the uh, early 1900s and uh, it was obtained primarily by my great grandfather uh for the harvesting of timber and they even had a sawmill near washington that they cut the timber and that uh, mill was subsequently closed and replaced by a, a more modern mill in the little town of opelousas uh and then so i i think you said it was early 1900s so often for about 50 years what, what what did the property look like when it became a WMA compared to how it looks today? Was it, you said it was oil field. Was it clear cut and it's grown up since? Did, I'm kind of curious what, how, how it's changed physically over the, um, the last four, 50 years plus. Lawrence, why don't you go ahead and answer that? Um, well, uh, yes. Uh, basically, the woods as it appears today is how it was 50 or 60 years ago. 
the the logging that's going on in there has been uh, select cut. Uh, now some hurricanes, uh, as in the hurricane Gustav, uh, knocked a bunch of trees down that we really had to spend a lot of time picking up to get them out, not to lose them. But basically, the forest is has been the same since I would imagine our ancestors got it because it was wow. strictly for timber and large timber. Wow, mm-hmm. that's you don't see that pretty much anywhere these days. That's 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 really awesome. Well, we hope to keep it that way for many years to come. Uh, we uh, cut trees, but we leave trees to continue to grow and come back possibly 15, maybe 20 years later, and cut that area again. So that's what's called selective cutting of timber. Uh, so what is, um, what's your future plans for the property, Patrick? Well, the future plans is to keep on going as we have since 1966. Uh, it would be my uh, wish, if I'm still around, in 10 years to renew the lease. Uh, we have we just think that we would rather grow trees and see an airport put there or see a solar farm put there and destroy the that would thereby destroy the uh, hunting potential so we hope to keep it just uh, as uh, forested as uh, it is right now and uh, allow the department of wildlife and fisheries commission to continue to partner with us in providing this uh, land to the uh, public as a service to the public well i know that i know that many many of our listeners and a lot of the followers a lot of the bow hunters of the state are extremely gracious for um y'all allowing us to hunt it um especially as a public service like that um i need to get over there and hunt it i, I think i've i was mainly living in baton rouge driving to opelousas a little further than sherburne when i was when I was uh, hunting that area, but um, I'd like to hunt it sometime soon. That does bring up what you said about the future, you know, keeping keeping the lease um, going and continuing it um, for the next 10, at least 20, 30 years or so. That brings up an interesting point of what, what was Lafayette, in 1966 what was baton rouge like in 1966 what was even washington like in 1966 and um the reason why i say that is because one of the things that that i wanted to ask you about is do you as as the state and as the country um grows in population and we move outward from cities do you um, do y'all have y'all ever considered the fact that y'all maybe one day it might be fifty or a hundred years from now, y'all could potentially be one of the few um, privately owned large tracts of land that is not inundated with progression of cities, if that makes sense. Um, is that something that's ever crossed your mind? Yeah, I would hate to see it turn into a residential section, and I'd like to be able to stay there for people to hunt. Uh, 95% of the visitors are hunting, but they have some 18,000 visits to that area, at least uh, last year, 2019, 2020. And many of these people were scouting, bird watching, sightseeing. Of course, maybe some of these things you don't want to do while guns and bows and arrows are flying, but uh, when they're not, it's used for other purposes that uh, people may want to uh, 
um, employ. Well, maybe I'm a little bit nostalgic in this, but it, it piques my interest as a father with young children and, and raising them in, a, in an outdoor kind of lifestyle. It, it, it piques my interest, you know, from the concept of what you're doing, what you're providing through the partnership um, with with the department is for younger kids that are growing up nowadays on the outskirts of larger metropolitan areas, they've probably never seen, at least not in the South, they've probably never seen nature in its purest form, un, you know, really managed to be exactly what it was in 1950 or 1960. And, you know, outside of the hunting opportunities and the fact that that, that virgin uh, swamp bottomland is, is really good habitat for all the different animals that we like to hunt, you know, just simply being able to take someone there and show them this is what it looked like before everybody started cutting down all their trees and planting pines and before we started building neighborhoods everywhere. I think that that's just a really cool thing that you guys are offering outside of the hunting opportunity. Absolutely. Yes, but there's actually a youth hunting uh, two-day period every year where the youth are invited to come uh, hunt. Uh, I'm not sure about the mechanics of that. I've never uh, gone and done it. Maybe Lawrence can uh, talk about that. But um, just uh, very interesting that in the year 2019-2020, there were 3,045 archery hunters that visited the area just um, exceeded slightly by modern firearms uh, carriers, which was 3,789. So about 700 more people were carrying guns than the people carrying bow and arrows. I thought there would have been more modern farm hunters over there. There were some other um, primitive uh, firearms hunters uh, there. And, but uh, there is a special effort made by the department to uh, interest the kids by having a youth hunt. Unfortunately, in uh, the years I mentioned, there were no deer kills. Uh, there was a bit of high water, I understand. But uh, as always, that youth hunt will be carried on in the future, as far as I know. Do you have the uh, Do you have the statistic, the deer harvest statistics over the last few years? Does, what kind of harvest rate? Happening. I do. Um, now, I don't have this year because uh, the season's still going on, but uh, um, party, the harvest summary for 2019 and 2020, uh, on that 11,100 acres, uh, there were 124 bucks harvested, 124. There were um, 68 does uh, taken. That means a total of 192 deer taken from the, uh, that area, and the, um, the weight, uh, I see the weight here for 5.5-year-old um, bucks was 190 pounds. Now, Lawrence has uh, mentioned the other day that he's uh, seen and heard of larger uh, bucks than that come out. He might want to uh, add to the uh, harvest summary. So, well, I think the, uh, the largest buck that I know of was a 333-pound deer that came oh off of there. God. In Louisiana? Yes. Was it obese? Is it? No, and it's, um, it's kind of common 
in this area, some of the neighboring clubs have had over 300-pound deer killed. Uh, wow. But, uh, nothing lately, but we've had several deer over 300 pounds killed in this area. Wow. So if, if you – I was crunching some numbers while you all were talking a second ago. You said there's 18,000 uh, visitors – I'm positive that a lot of those are the same people checking in and out multiple times, especially if there's only six or seven hunters or six or seven hunters in there um, in a season. But if you divide that number of deer taken between bucks and does by the number of bow hunters and rifle hunters, you have about a 2.9% success rate. That seems bleak, but that to your point, I mean, how many people in that specifically people that are more local to the area that may be the only place they hunt they may be going in and out 20 30 times just one person yeah so that's exactly the number to figure. something else that's interesting and of course the number can't be divided evenly like this but if you have eighteen thousand visits to the site that's 120 per day every day of the year um so i'm sorry that's not correct that's 50 per day every day of the year and if you divide it by just the days of hunting season october through um, the end of January, five months, then you're at about 120 visits per day on that property is what it averages out to. Interesting. 18,000 sounds like a very high number to me. To <laughs> yeah, and I mean, well, let's take let's take me and let's pretend I'm a, I'm a deer hunter in that area. I'm going to scout it in September or, or August, and I might sign in five or six times, then I'm going to come hunt it 10 or 15, 20 times during the season. So, it, it, you know, we might actually be talking about a true core number of individual hunters, less than three to 5,000 people, you know, just checking in multiple mm-hmm. times. I guess that's something that we don't really have. I would, I would doubt that you have the individual hunter data on that. I think you would more have the more aggregate st- stats of activity. Am I right? Uh, that's what I have for the year 2019, 2020 is a number of hunters, waterfowl hunters, small game hunters that went into the area. I didn't yeah. total that amount, but it's nowhere near eighteen thousand. Um, but that's the that's the number that I had in the report that uh, regional director Tony Vidrine gave me. <laughs> Tony's great, by the way. Um, he's my friend Nick Vidrine's dad. Tony's a fantastic guy. Um, he he, he op- I don't know all the properties that he manages or he is over, but I know for a fact he's over this way. Sherburn, but I think he's over a few more, if I'm not mistaken. So one thing that kind of comes to mind um, when we're talking about how to how to separate these numbers and, and make sense of them, are there any like events that take place there in the off season? Obviously, that would probably not be something that happened during the season with with people out there hunting and and firearms and all that. But you know, I, I know a lot of places they'll have kids camps and educational opportunities and different things like that are they doing things like that at this away that could drive that number up where you may have a hundred or so visitors just over one weekend for one specific purpose Lawrence, are you aware of anything well they do have a uh, hunter education classes that go on back there hmm. uh, and then they do their shooting for the hunter ed class so they might have a, a a class that goes on Friday night, Saturday, and then they finish up on Sunday. So you'll have three days of visiting. Uh, so you yeah. you know you could have 
25 or 30 kids getting their hunter education certificate with their parent or parents three days in a row. So that's all separate check-ins and check-outs. So yeah. that's how your numbers can go up. Yeah, uh, that's what I was uh, – you know, I know in in other places that that's pretty common. You know, the hunter's ed is one of the main things that comes to mind, but other things like – you know, the the departments in other states as well will, you know, they'll do lots of different things in the off-season to sort of engage with the public and get kids and new hunters and new outdoorsmen involved by fishing rodeos and hunter's ed, as we mentioned, and things like that. So I wondered I wondered about that. But, yeah, that, that number seems, seems high, but I guess kind of the ball starts rolling downhill and those check-in, check-outs start to add up pretty quickly. Right, and there's there's also quite a bit of fishing that goes on in there during the once the hunting season is over with. Yeah. There's a uh, bayous, and they have actually a pond back there, a stocked pond that gets a lot of attention. So there's a lot of kids fishing out there with their parents in that pond. So summer afternoons, there's always quite a few people in there. I have a question that. Um we haven't really defined in this conversation and i think maybe people that are listening may also what uh, it, it sounds to me like lawrence you kind of have a different um a different i guess role or approach with the property what is it what is your relationship to the property uh, as opposed to patrick's well, well i farm the a lot of the other family land and i'm in that management area probably five out of seven days a week so i i get to see uh the wildlife all year people going and coming because i'm i farm everything around there so i see people going and coming all day so how much land how much land does the family have outside of the the management area well it's Uh, quite a bit but it's not all entitled tied up into one company we have, the family is a little bit diverse so but we have a farming operation as well so okay uh lawrence what is um what's the the hog situation like as a farmer in that area it's very bad very bad we um when we get to to getting in the field in the spring we're hunting Somebody's usually on the property at night, every night, with thermal scopes and uh, I have uh, Wildlife and Fisheries is, has some automatic traps that they're using, uh, and myself and a federal hog man and one other guy, we, we take turns at night. About every three nights you go, I go, he goes. And uh, they are very bad. I, I don't know how many we kill, but it's a very, it's a high number. Mm. And that huh. seems to be moving. They're moving out, and they, people I've heard say that they didn't have hogs last year, and they're full of hogs this year. So it's it's a bad problem. Hmm. Um, are y'all? Y'all using uh, any contract service like Ruger or Hog Control or anything like that to help keep it in check? No, um, we're using the state wildlife fisheries and uh, the federal 
USDA with their traps as well as the wild and fisheries and then the uh, uh, night hog control between uh, the three of us. Uh, we don't have any, try to keep the uh, access to the property limited uh, for safety and uh, that type of thing. Gotcha. How, are you are you familiar with with um, Shane Kessler or River Hog Control? Have you ever heard of him or them? No, I, I haven't. Okay, we well we we did a podcast with him uh, last year, and um, what he what he does is he, exactly what <clears throat> exactly what y'all are doing at night, um, which is he has, just has access to properties all over the central part of the state and just uh, he has a, a crew of people and if they find a sounder of hogs they'll they'll um obviously only shoot them where they have permission but they'll they will take out between five and 25 hogs out of a sounder between his crew of people and, and their rifles it's um i mean it what's really it's really interesting to watch their videos that they capture through the the thermal imaging because it's incredible to watch 20 hogs scatter and then 20 hogs laying dead about eight seconds later in the field. It's really and like none of them get away. It's really impressive. So, yeah. um, uh, I, as far as trapping goes, um, have y'all noticed, um, a kind of, a, a, a shift in, um, in, their behavior towards traps are they avoiding them now or are you still catching them regularly how does how does that look well the tra the traps that they're using are only the large circle traps with the gates that are operated through the telephones mm -hmm. uh, the, the the little small traps are almost impossible to catch a pig in because they've gotten smart to those but the big traps are still working work pretty well. Uh, we've caught uh, up to 38 at one time in the trap. That's a uh, wow. So we're doing that uh, and shooting and doing the best we can with what we got to work with. And that was if we would, but just the amounts, yeah, just the amounts we're killing. Uh, if we didn't shoot those in one year, that would be three times the, the amount of pigs you'd have. Sure. Yeah, I've I've been told that you've got to kill seventy percent of the current population to keep it from growing. Right. Mm. And if it's, I don't know if it's not higher than that. Yeah. The percentage. Be. Well, then I I I'd, li I'd like to ask you this, and I'd like to ask your opinion because there's a lot of you know, people that have no ties to public land um, feel differently about this. But in your opinion, do you think that hog hunting at night on the WMA is something that the state should allow to get the hog population under control since it is your land? I think that would be a, a big safety concern. Mm -hmm. If it would be done, which it is being done there now, but it's being done by the government personnel. But if you just turned a bunch of people loose in there, I think you'd have a safety issue, yeah. which is what we don't want. I think you would almost yeah. have to have to 
the only way I think that they could legitimately institute a system like that would be in a controlled situation, like a lottery or a draw, where they could control the number of people and how they were accessing it at night. They couldn't. There's no way they could just simply open it up and say, "Hey, it's public use. If you want to come hog hunt at night, come on." There's just yeah, no, yeah, that's impossible from a safety perspective. I, from my 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 point of view. Well, like I'll I said, um, you know, my my opinion on it. Actually, we we talked to a biologist um, many 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 episodes ago, Betsy Dutrois, who has the, the same request from a lot of people for um, Kasachi uh, in uh, Kasachi national forest and then a couple other tinsaw also and her concern from a biologist standpoint is that the wildlife outside of pigs never would have a moment of rep- of reprieve like they would never be left alone day or night um and that would cause stress issues especially if it was something that was opened up on an annual basis or outside of deer season um and then there's Outside of the safety issue of the people doing it, there's also the um, the extreme possibility of people seeing record-sized deer and bucks through not through their thermals at night and shooting them and trying to extract them in secret. I'm not saying that everybody would do that, but you know for a fact somebody sees a 180-inch buck at 3 a.m. with a thermal somebody's going to pull that trigger, you know? Um, and so it's a very slippery slope. And that's why I was wondering your opinion on it, being the landowner, what, you know, your thought might be on it, because you seem to be on, on both sides of it. You're, you own the property. So you obviously have safety concerns to and liability. But then on the other hand, you're also the victim of a huge hog problem. So I was just curious about your, your stance on that. Right, and we, the hog problem is not something we started or anybody particularly started, but uh, I just think you'd have a, a, it would be an enforcement nightmare for the game wardens to try to enforce all these uh, people in and out and shooting, and, and just like you said, somebody will shoot a deer. It's, 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 it's going to happen. Because they just can't help themselves, and then yeah. So the other thing that up... gets talked about in this conversation a lot too is the it, it happens even in the daylight with the increased bear population all across the state. People shooting bears, thinking that they're mm. shooting hogs, which Didn't is even think about that. Which yeah. is that's a problem even in low light regular hunting situations. Those mistakes happen. It very obviously would happen with thermal. So that just brings up the question: Is 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 there a bear population at this weight that that has been reported or that you've noted or anything? There are several bears around. I, I don't can't honestly say if I've heard of anything in the management area, but in the the hunting clubs surrounding the management area, there are sightings of bear in those clubs, but they. They don't tend to stay long. You see them in there, and then a couple of weeks, and then they move on. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you have a pretty good rapport with the neighboring properties and hunting clubs and stuff like that. I I guess you you talk to those people on a regular basis. 
much of the property belongs to uh, Fisco, to the same company, and we have hunting clubs on that property. So uh, naturally, Lawrence keeps in close touch with them and hears what they're getting and what they're seeing because it is um, our property. Oh, okay. We, yeah, besides the management area, we man, we maintain 20 hunting clubs. Of various sizes, so you got a pretty big. Operation. We're in touch with a lot of people. <laughs> you got a pretty big operation on your hand. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, let, let me ask you this: what What would y'all like to see hunters and users of the property do a better job of as as we use your property as a public service? I think things are going well the way they are. Lawrence, you have any ideas? Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, it's going fine. I mean, you have your, your issues with people hunting where they're not supposed to be, uh, venturing out of the boundary, and we usually just make a call to the enforcement division, or I'm friends with most of this area, uh, game wardens, and it's handled. No charges usually or issued. Just, people just need to be aware of where they're hunting as compared to when they get out the management area. It's clearly marked. Uh, yellow paint and boundaries and uh but you always have a few that want to encroach on something else so you just deal yeah. with them and uh, move on but i think everything is fine the way it's going that's good that's good to hear well um like i said i know that many of our listeners and many other people that bow in the state they they probably before this podcast never knew that it was something that was um, uh, uh, allowed for them to be uh, to get used from or allowed them to use um, they probably like I was under the impression that it was a state-owned property uh, and, and et cetera et cetera but with it being a lease you know that that, that comes with a, a large uh, amount of gratitude that we have towards y'all and your family for allowing us to hunt it so we really appreciate that but thank you thank you um, <laughs> patrick um, what have we have we missed something that we covered that we we talked about before or um is there anything else that maybe we haven't covered that you'd like us and our listeners to know well yeah there's one thing that i had no knowledge of when we were at the meeting in lafayette renewing the uh, lease and that was a very scarcity of deer some years ago and i was informed that between the years of 1961 and 1965 a deer i have a record of 105 deer being placed in that area and those deer came from gum cove madison parish tinsaw parish and pecan island and uh but i had no idea that uh the population census had been so low at that time that they had to restock it. And uh, Lawrence had made mention also at that meeting about uh, some of the deer variation in size. You might want to mention that, Lawrence. Well, the, the deer, when they were put in there, some of the deer, as Pat said, came from South Louisiana, which Avery Island uh, supplied quite a few. And then... Uh, Tinsaw Parish up in the north. So you have two, I guess, strains of the whitetail deer in there. And, and you can see it. 
uh, in some of the deer with the longer, longer bodies. Uh, the, the tensile deer tend to have a shorter body but a much heavier body. Uh, the Avery Island deer are longer, a lot leaner. But so that's pretty interesting. We have that. There's other parts of the state state where that's pretty well documented, and I actually live and hunt in one of those areas in East Feliciana where there's been restocking in the area over the years as well as the Idlewald LSU deer farm where deer have gotten out of the, the fence and you know co-mingled with the native deer and, and even on my own property right here it's there are times where you, you you get a picture of a deer or you see a deer and it's very obvious that one is not like the other and, and it's, it's very interesting how they maintain those genetic features even after years and years of interbreeding. So, Boris, did y'all receive any of the deer that came from up north? Uh, I, I think it was Michigan, Wisconsin. I think Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Which one? Wisconsin. Was Wisconsin that came here. Yeah. Well, they they talked about uh, deer from Wisconsin, but I'm really not not sure. I know in Tinsaw Parish. A lot of Wisconsin deer ended up there, mm-hmm. and uh, we've gotten they they stock deer from Tinsaw Parish in Saint Landry Parish, so it possibly could be some from Wisconsin. I'm not sure. So we um, we interviewed um, uh, Jonathan Bordelon, who's the deer. Uh, what was his title? Locked? The deer, deer program manager. Deer program manager. Yeah, um, well, and. We've we've known about and heard about the restocking efforts in the 50s and 60s for a long time, um, but he informed us that a lot of the deer that came from far north, Wisconsin, and, and that that area, that strain of deer, he doesn't believe that the descendants of those deer, if you will, survived and and, and are kind of still prevalent in our current population. He thinks that. They struggled to live in our climate and then slowly dwindled themselves out of the population and didn't reproduce at the rate that other more local deer, like like you said, the Avery Island, the Tinsaw, Madison Parish deer may have. So I was just curious if y'all knew if you knew that y'all had gotten some of those as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I couldn't say one way or the other on that. Okay. Um, well, that's really interesting, guys. Is there is there anything else that y'all want to cover before we jump off of here? Nope, I'm good. Yeah, I think it's been very thorough. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we've been talking about this for a few weeks. Patrick, I really appreciate the research and the efforts that you have uh, you've gone through to uh, find out more about the property, get us some great numbers. I was really intrigued about the, um, the stats from last year, especially the, the numbers, the number of gun hunters, the number of bow hunters, the number of deer taken, things like that. Those are, uh, I, I love statistics like that. So I really appreciate you providing those to us. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> well, um, I'm, I, I think it's funny. I do have to think it's funny that, uh, or, or acknowledge that, this all came from a stupid T-shirt, <laughs> you know, a ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, which I, I have, I have one of. <laughs> That's great. I love it. A facetious, a facetious T-shirt that that ended up uh, to us learning a lot about one of our state lands. 
um, and uh, or one of our, our public lands in the state. So, anyway, with that being said, thank you both for joining us tonight, and we really appreciate your time. Yep. Thank you very much. Well, thank guys. you for having us. Thank you. Y'all have a Happy good night. Money. Y'all have a good night. Thank guys. you. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week. Mm